for me, late 30s, early 40s, I'd had enough. I was tired of being single. I wanted, I wanted to share my life with someone. And I know that's the position many of your listeners will be in and many of my clients are in. And I wanted to share my life with someone and, but it felt like banging my head against a wall because I kept doing the same things. But as you say, I discovered that I was the common denominator in all those relationships. So what can I do about it? Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. We've often spoken to attachment styles on the podcast. In episodes 165, 178, and 179 with psychotherapist Elliot Anderson, and in episode 102 with Dr. Duena Welch. But in today's episode, we'll hear a firsthand account from someone who has examined her dating history and recognized how her avoidant attachment style caused her to both leave relationships and sabotage them. But most importantly, our guest today shares how she found healing and found love despite unhealthy attachment from childhood wounds. Catherine shares her journey with vulnerability and courage, and I know you will be inspired because Catherine's journey reminds us that healing is possible, no matter what attachment style you may have. Here's a little bit more about Catherine Baldwin. Catherine Baldwin is a love, dating, and relationship coach, midlife mentor, motivational speaker, and the author of How to Fall in Love. Catherine supports people to change self-sabotaging relationship patterns and find healthy love, as well as to create a fulfilling, authentic life. Catherine's work draws on her own experience of transforming her relationship with herself, Overcoming self-harming patterns, including an eating disorder and a habit of falling for unavailable men, and finding and forming a healthy, committed relationship in her 40s. My interview with Catherine Baldwin, author of How to Fall in Love, right after this. Have you heard? You can now listen to my book, Single is the New Black. Don't wear white till it's right. As you know, I wrote the book I wish had been available to me when I was single. So obviously, it's not about how to snag a man. Rather, it's all about how to stay strong amidst single shaming and remain true to yourself and never settle for anything less than an extraordinary relationship. Find it on Audible or iTunes. And for a free sample, check out Chapter 11 of Single is the New Black in Episode 145 of Love and Life. Catherine, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Karen. It's lovely to be here again. I've had so much nice feedback from our first conversation about your book, How to Fall in Love with Yourself. Yes. <laughs> and another realm that you and I align is that so many of the women in my community find me because they really want to connect with someone who has lived those many years single. And that was your experience as well as a later in life bride, just as I was. But we are really celebrating the single life and really trying to explore and examine 
how to remain happy and hopeful and positive, even when life is taking you down a path that you may not have chosen yourself if you had planned it out. Yeah. And as you have reflected over your many years single, and you speak about this in your book, that there were certainly circumstances do what circumstances do, but there were also some patterns of behavior and of relating to romantic partners and even your family of origin concerns that perhaps kept you from being as available to a true deep love. Could you speak a little bit to that today? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think the way you describe it is perfect. On the outside, I didn't look like someone who wasn't able to connect intimately with people. I was quite confident. I was very sociable. I had plenty of friends. I worked as a journalist, as a foreign correspondent. I lived in Mexico and Brazil. I had a very colorful life before moving back to London. But when it came to the close, intimate, romantic relationship, that always went wrong. So I wanted a relationship and I had relationships as well as long periods of singleness. But the relationships I had, none of them progressed. Generally, I found a reason to end the relationship or I pushed the other person away through my behavior. And obviously some of those relationships weren't right for me, but what I I understood coming into my late 30s and early 40s when I really, really wanted to sort this out. Why isn't this working for me? Why can't I have a relationship? Probably the same thing that many of your listeners are. I'm an attractive, sociable, intelligent woman. I have plenty of friends and an interesting life. Why can't I make a relationship work? And I really wanted to know that. And in my late 30s, early 40s, I, I went on a journey to try and figure it out. And I understood that deep down in my subconscious, there were forces at play that were sabotaging my relationships, pushing people away when I got close, choosing people who weren't emotionally available to me because deep down inside me, I wasn't actually emotionally available. I was afraid of true commitment, true intimacy, true relationship. And that comes from in my childhood, my family of origin, which we can look at. But on the surface, and I think this is what confuses people, on the surface, it looks like I'm, I'm dating, I'm looking for love, I'm open, I'm ready. But then we have to look at the patterns. And if they're always the same, that the relationships always end or we sabotage them or, or we push people away or we find fault with people, then it could be that deep down we're actually afraid inside, we're avoidant inside. When you were speaking, I just thought of so many of the women in my community, that is really their deepest fear is that somehow, despite their conscious level of desiring partnership and pursuing relationships and doing what we got to do, which putting some effort behind our goals and dreams and desires, but they do have that deep fear that perhaps at some level that's unbeknownst to them, they can't even access this that there's a part of them that is in fact, as you put it, sabotaging and perhaps even avoidant attachment style, which again is, I get concerned because I'm worried that folks may label themselves something. And then we know that we oftentimes, if we label something, we live up to that label. Mm. So I do worry about some of these terms, but I also know that a label is powerful. And if you can identify what's going on, oftentimes that can bring relief in just the sense that, okay, this is what it is. And I know that there are folks out here who know how to help folks who've gone through this or who have this. 
So when you talk about avoidant attachment style, uh, often there's women in my community who also fear that they have anxious attachment Mm. style. But in this case, we're talking about the part of you that said, I want love. I want this to be part of my life. And yet my behaviors continue to take me in a different direction. Yeah. So I'll just talk very briefly about the the labels, because I think you make a good point. I I would say now, if I were to give myself a diagnosis, I would be a combination of anxious and avoidant attachment. So both of those things. But I did all my work and all my healing without those labels, without that diagnosis. I was working with professionals. I was exploring this, but I hadn't read that book, the, the very good book Attached. I hadn't read that. I read some other books, but we simply look at our behaviors. How am I behaving? And why am I behaving in that way? And for me, the avoidance was on the surface, I wasn't avoidant. So on the surface, I wanted love. In fact, I wanted it too much. So I talk about this a lot in my work. When we date with a craving, Mm. we aren't discerning. And imagine going grocery shopping when you're absolutely starving you will put anything in your basket and you won't be discerning at all. And that is what we do when we date with a craving. So I had a massive craving for love and for intimacy and for attachment, which came from wounds in my childhood with my early caregivers. So there was a massive craving, a wound that hadn't been healed, which I didn't know about at the time. So I was going into relationships in between, as I said, periods of of singleness and just being on my own and sometimes enjoying that. So there's nothing wrong with being single. It can be a wonderful state to be. And I had many exciting adventurous years as a single woman with lovely friends and so forth. But I was craving attachment. But as soon as I got anywhere near, near the true, true thing, I would avoid it, sidestep it. And my primary behaviors were I would say finding fault with the other was right there at the top. So there's something about him that isn't right. And and I start with the superficial. It was his his teeth or his hair or his level of education or the way he chewed his food or the way he spoke. There were all these things that I would pick on and they would become mammoth in my mind and I couldn't get through them. So Finding fault was one way that I avoided falling for other avoidant people. So other emotionally unavailable people. So in that category, we would have alcoholics, people who are addicted to drugs, people who are workaholics, people who are exercise addicts, people who live on a different continent a million miles away that we can never access. So people who are inaccessible in some way. So I would fall for those people that I, I I want to be with someone, but I will choose someone who can't actually be with me. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, that keeps me safe because deep down, I am actually afraid of love. So if I, if I find someone who can't actually give me love, then in my subconscious, I, I'm safe. I'm not going to get hurt. So choosing people who weren't able to give love, who were emotionally unavailable and and sabotage. So being, and I don't want to put myself down here, but in some cases being a nightmare in a relationship, very demanding, very controlling, 
And that was my saboteur, my inner saboteur. And some guys just wouldn't stand for it. And I would say actually that I went into my now relationship with my now husband with some of those behaviors. There were occasions when I can look back and think, gosh, I was trying to sabotage the relationship then. And let's say that the sort of controlling, demanding, I chose a man who was very patient. Fortunately, I could see my behaviors before they absolutely wrecked our relationship. I also, like many of his previous partners, wanted to turn him into something else that he wasn't. And that had really annoyed him in the past that women would turn him into a project. And I probably did the same. But again, I had sufficient self-awareness to step back and go, gosh, he doesn't really like being changed into something that he's not. I'll stop doing that and I'll accept him as he is. But all those controlling, demanding, trying to change someone, all these self-sabotaging behaviors as well. So the result of all that was singleness. There was lovely desired singleness where we are content and having fabulous holidays with our friends and growing our career and developing ourselves personally. And then for me, late thirties, early forties, I'd had enough. I was tired of being single. I wanted, I wanted to share my life with someone. And I know that's the position many of your listeners will be in and many of my clients are in. And I wanted to share my life with someone, but it felt like banging my head against a wall because I kept doing the same things. I discovered that I was the common denominator in all those relationships. So what can I do about it? Yeah, I'm sure it was even internally confusing to recognize I do have these avoidant tendencies as you started to to gain some clarity through the work you were doing and the intrapersonal work, trying to understand these patterns and understand these impulses even. Because I know when we're in them and we're not aware, they feel very instinctual. It's just, well, doesn't everyone behave that way in a relationship? Don't we always get demanding and and critical because that's how people are? Or don't we always date with a craving? I mean, you're out there to meet somebody. So that urgency that one might feel. Yeah on a date with that anxious piece coming in. So it must have been difficult to have both impulses, the anxious element, and then that juxtaposed against the avoidant element. And I'm sure at times it was quite maddening going, what is going on with me? That self-understanding, which we all know is so critical for all realms of life, not just for relationships, but the more we can understand our our patterns and our ways of, of operating we can get a handle on them. And I'm sure it was at times very confusing as you were trying to sort it all out. It was. And I think you describe it well there. It's maddening. It's crazy making. And the awareness is a gradual awakening. And there comes a stage where you're growing in self-awareness and knowledge and you start to perhaps see your patterns, but you can't do anything about them yet. And you keep repeating them. And that's crazy making. And when I think about the anxious side of my attachments, again, this came from my childhood. I didn't trust people. I didn't trust relationships. People were kind of dangerous. Relationships were dangerous. Dangerous relationship equaled pain. And and I'm sure your listeners will be familiar of that sort of hanging on the end of the phone, waiting for a text, putting all your eggs in that particular basket, just being anxious all the time. When you're with the person feeling, this is nice, I feel okay. 
And then when you're not with a person, all the crazy thoughts and, and all the worry and the anxiety. So I had that. I'm sure your listeners will be familiar with that state of anxiety that many of us feel like, when will the person text? Have they gone off with someone else? Am I good enough? Just always feeling anxious. And then on some points, feeling okay with the person, other moments, finding fault with them and criticizing them and judging them. And that horrible feeling, which I work with a lot of clients with this, is this right? Is this right? Should I be with this person? I'm not sure. When I'm with them, sometimes it's good. And then sometimes when I'm with them, all I can see are the faults and I can't stand it and I want to get away from them. The next time I see them, oh, it's, it's nice for a while. When I'm not with them, my head is going crazy. It's not pleasant. And also, I think what we think is, in a way, it shouldn't be like that, but it is like that for so many of us. But I think we've been sort of duped in a way by Hollywood or, or rom-com to think that it's it shouldn't be that hard and we shouldn't have these doubts. And if I'm not completely sure today, then it's not right. And I had that a lot that Michael Bublé song, I just haven't met you yet. It's like, this doesn't feel, this isn't smooth. This isn't easy. I'm leaving. And my relationship did become lovely and smooth and easy, but I had to go through an ordeal first, you know, of understanding why I was doing the push-pull. I want you, I want you, I want you. I get close. I don't want you. I don't want you. I don't want you. I don't like your nose. I don't like your shoes. <laughs> and I don't want to trivialize it because it, it drives right. us crazy. But I literally had those thoughts. I, mm. I don't know if I can be with someone who, who didn't go to the same university as me or the same level of university as me. I don't know if you'll fit in with my friends. I think there's someone else out there. So I'll go and find that person. And I might have a few good days or weeks with that person, but then the same thoughts will kick in. Like, I don't like how you do this, or I'm not sure if you're right for me. So when you were trying to sort this out, what were some of the steps? I mean, obviously you identified that what you'd been doing wasn't working. What is that? The definition of insanity? I don't know who came up with it. It's attributed to maybe Einstein and a couple other people, but doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. You came to that awareness that something had to change. You were willing to, to look at it and examine it. And you've already described, it wasn't like, boom, I read one book or boom, I worked with one coach and all of a sudden everything was perfect. But then when you did start to date your husband, some of those patterns tried to creep their way back in, but you had begun to have the wherewithal to take that cognitive step back and observe yourself in the context of this relationship and go, oh, wait a minute, here's that avoidant part of me coming up again. Oh, wait a minute, here's that anxious part of, of me coming up again. So describe some of the, the steps you were able to take because I think that's where people get stuck. They go, okay, even if I identify that I have some of these tendencies, what the heck do I do? And it can feel overwhelming. So the first stage is, as we're saying, is the, is the awareness. So we build our awareness and we can do that by looking at all our past patterns, looking at all our past relationships and seeing the common thread, the common patterns, the repeated patterns, and we identify ourselves as the common denominator. And I think that process can be hard for some of us. Mm. Some of the, the videos I do and the work I do, it can be a hard truth, a hard pill to swallow that 
that I am the common denominator in all those relationships. So we need lots of self-compassion and gentleness on that journey and lots of self-love and self-forgiveness. So, so that's kind of the awareness piece. And then I think from my own experience and from working with lots of other people, I think we need others around us to help reflect back to us when we might be going down the same road. So in my case, I was working with a professional and I, was, I had other women around me who were on a similar journey trying to figure out their relationship patterns and find love. And that's one of the reasons I do group work now because mm-hmm. it's so powerful to have a group of women who can point out to each other, oh, you're going down that road again. You're, you're repeating that pattern again. And, and we can sort of pull each other back and, and say, maybe this is the same pattern. So I had professional support from a psychotherapist at the time. I had women around me in the form of of groups of women who were doing similar work. And I suppose they were the two main elements, which is probably why I offer those elements now, professional support and groups, because I think those two things combine what what we need. I mean, my background is also in recovery from various addictions, including an eating disorder, dysfunctional relationships, including an element of love addiction. So I have gone through a recovery journey, recovering from various dysfunctional behaviors, self-harming behaviors. And when I went on that journey, and I'm still on that journey, there are always people around you who are walking the same path. And that's really helpful. So, so a community community is really important. I also read a lot. I studied counseling and psychotherapy myself. So I understood life attachments and childhood development. And that was really helpful. I read a lot of books. I did read a brilliant book called He's Scared, She's Scared. To be honest, I only needed to read like three chapters because (laughs) I saw myself and I got it. And that was the emotional, the emotional avoidance, my own emotional unavailability. I saw it. I saw it in a couple of case studies. So I, I got it. And then I suppose I was dating with support. So when I met my husband, it took me three years after I met him to actually commit to him. I met him, we got together, I walked away. I came back, we got together, I walked away. I came back, (laughs) we got together. And at age 43, I stayed. And what I needed throughout that time I needed people on my side who were supporting me, who were saying, why don't you give it a full six months? Why don't you stay for a full six months? And whenever your mind wanders to the other random potential guy in your fantasy head who (laughs) might not even (laughs) exist, those people around me would bring me back to, to the fact that I had committed to giving this relationship its time it's due time to see if it was going to work out. And and there's another side to that coin, which is we obviously don't want to give six months or all that time to relationships that when when we're seeing loads of red flags, we don't want to ignore our intuition, which is why it's so important to connect with our intuition, which is the first step 
of my book and the work that I do. So we want to be in touch with our intuition and and we want to be aware of red flags and how to deal with them. We want to be aware of our fears. And I suppose that's the other work I did, really understanding my fears about relationships and how they drive my patterns about relationships. And that has become a bit of my specialist subject, actually, fears and patterns. Yeah. So doing all that work on fears and patterns, that was really important. And that's some of the work I do now. And I really love that work. Fears. What are your fears? Where do they come from? How do they feed into your patterns? If we know our fears, we can change our patterns. I think fear is so crucial. And it's it plays out in both of the ends of the spectrum that we're discussing. It plays into that dating with a craving because of the fear of being alone or the fear that I got to grab somebody because what if nobody ever falls in love with me? And that fear of the public perception. She's been single so long. What's wrong with her? All the questions. And we ask those of ourselves too. Like, is there something wrong with me? And so fear is so powerful on the anxious attachment end. And then also in the avoidant, because it sounds like so much of what you were doing is connecting, then running away, mm. connecting that push pull, that approach avoidance we talk about. Mm. And that fear must have been, I'll be stuck with someone that I'm not that crazy about. Or I'll be stuck with someone who it wasn't the right fit, or I'll miss out on that perfect fantasy world person that you kept conjuring up. It sounds like, and your friends were calling you out on that. Mm. Fear is so powerful. So I love that your work addresses that as a, as a pillar, like a fundamental pillar of what you do. I love sharing Catherine's story because I know many of you fear you have an anxious or avoidant attachment style. And I hope that if this is the case, you found Catherine's story to be clarifying and encouraging. We did decide to break it up into two parts because there's a lot to digest and it's so poignant. And I wanted to give you time to reflect on what she says in part one before consuming part two, which will roll out on Thursday. So check back for that. The love and life hack for this week is attachment style impacts us, but it doesn't have to define us. Also, be sure to hop onto our Instagram pages tomorrow to enter Catherine's book giveaway. We'll be selecting a winner at the end of the week. Thank you as always for listening. And if you haven't grabbed your free copy of my Empowered Dating Playbook, please do so by going to loveandlifemedia.com. The strategies I share in the playbook will be super helpful for you if you do happen to have an anxious or avoidant attachment style. Of course, if you have a secure attachment style, the playbook works for you as well. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson Averill, and until tomorrow, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson Averill.